1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in European Politics. I'm Tim Jones and my guest today is Paul Hansbury, author of Belarus in Crisis, From Domestic Unrest to the Russia-Ukraine War, published in April by Hearst. The war in Ukraine is entering what could well be its decisive phase as Kiev prepares a counter-offensive using what will probably be a peak in Western arms supplies. In parallel, and according to them, in response to this and NATO's expansion into Finland, the Russians have announced plans to deploy tactical nuclear weapons into Belarus with the storage facilities ready by July the 1st. Belarus's effective president for life, Alexander Lukashenko, has spent the past 29 years in office walking a tightrope between hugging Moscow close and clinging on to policy independence that is domestically popular and secures power for him, his family and his allies. But the war to his south has forced Europe's last dictator to pick a side. Pearl Hensbury's book explains why, by February 2022, Lukashenko had no choice. He writes, A quiet annexation of Belarus to Russia is largely happening, even if many Belarusians are unaware of the fact, and concludes that the outcome of the Russia Ukraine war has arguably become the decisive factor shaping Belarus' future, stated. Educated at Birkbeck University of London and St. Anthony's College, Oxford, Dr. Hansbury is a consulting analyst whose doctoral research was into the foreign policies of small powers, using Belarus as his primary case study. Paul, welcome to the podcast.
0: It's very good to be with you. Well, let's start with, and um, obviously the book,
1: as the title suggests, is focused on the political and economic crisis in Belarus since 2020 but it's also a biography of a little-known nation. So to set the stones, could you give us a potted history of pre-Lukashenko-Belarus and how it was that you ended up making Belarus your specialism?
0: Hmm. So I'll, I'll start with the last part. Um, I, I first visited Belarus back in 2008. I'd, I'd been going to Russia frequently to practice my language skills And uh, a Belarusian friend who was helping me with my Russian said, why don't you go to Belarus and I can put you in touch with people to show you around. Um, And so um, I I went to Belarus and I recognized that this was a country that was actually quite different to Russia in many respects. um, And that it was a country that very few people in the the UK where I live uh, knew very much about. Um, And so... Somehow the the consequence of my holiday, my first holiday in Belarus was that I ended up writing uh, a PhD about Belarusian. Honestly, um, as as you do uh, after going on holiday somewhere, um, and I guess I'm the kind of person that just persists with things. So uh, now there's a book. Um, so you asked for a, a potted history. Um, This is uh, a territory in Eastern Europe that has, over the centuries, passed from control of one one overlord to another. So, from the the 13th century onwards, it was part. It was within the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, which uh, was this huge state stretching the the length of Eastern Europe, Um, and then with time, that the Lithuanian and Polish crowns merged, and so now Belarus territory was part of the polish lithuanian commonwealth Um, and that continues up until the the end of the 18th century when uh poland was broken up and and now the the lands were absorbed into the the land was absorbed into the russian empire um and this sort of takes us through continues through to the first world war um the end of the first world war poland is put back on the map and now uh, Belarus is divided. Uh, it finds itself half in what is now Poland and half and Eastern Belarus is in what was now Bolshevik, uh, Russia. Um, and in, uh, interesting bit for the future of Belarus is that in this, uh, this moment at the end of world war one, there's a very brief effort at statehood, um, very brief. Um, and, there was something called the belarusian people's republic um but that's uh disappears very uh doesn't really attain recognition um and it then it's not until the collapse of the soviet union in uh at the end of 1991 that belarus first attains a sovereignty that is seriously and widely recognized um, and then you get a, a very brief period of uncertain politics up until 1994, various political forces vying for, for power. And then in 1994, Alexander Lukashenko um, was elected as president. Um, and he reclaimed uh, his mandate through a series of elections that are widely understood to have been rigged. Um, Lukashenko has even joked about that fact. Um, for example, uh, he said at one one time in the past, uh, yes, sure, the, the, the result was manipulated uh, to give him an 80% vote share, claiming, uh, claiming that no one believed the real figure, which was higher yet. Um, and so he rules with, you know, with an iron fist, if you like, um, for the best part of three decades. Um, and anyway, come 2020, uh, for various reasons I describe in the book, uh, there was now a lot of discontent among Belarusians to, uh, towards the status quo. Uh, and so we got these, we saw these huge street protests against the, the autocratic regime of of Alexander Lukashenko.
1: Yeah, um, that's, that's a very interesting background. And it really comes to the, the first chapter of your book. Um, Fundamental to that, or the really plays into post-Lukashenko politics is this um, process you describe in the book as um, one side of uh, domestic politics having this East-oriented nation-building product, project, and another side having a West-oriented nation-building building project, uh, while Lukashenko has clearly show, chosen the Eastern path. He has, until now, teased Western themes and played off the European Union against Russia and against China, and as you mentioned there, uh, Poland still has this quite significant uh, purchase in, in, in domestic politics. C- can you take us through that um, uh, that argument from your book? Mm,
0: um, indeed. So in, in International Affairs, Lukashenko has uh, a reputation for playing different sides Uh, off against one another, um, outside actors. Um, His trick has long been to present himself to Russia as a defensive outpost against Western um, expansionism um, and the idea that Western states are sponsoring regime change politics um, and then claim support from Russia accordingly, um, while at the same time, telling states in the West that he needs saving from Russia um, and playing on helplessness a little bit. He's quite wily in that regard. I mean, even now you see in recent months how he's frankly exaggerating the NATO threat as a way of scaring Russia into conceding to his demands, um, though I, it's hard to think that even Vladimir Putin takes him all that seriously right now. Um but Poland is quite central to that. Um Poland is presented by the Lukashenko regime as a as a, as an imperialistic power seeking to reclaim its control over over Ben-Rishan territory. Um and uh the Lukashenko and his those around him tend to point to a number of um elements in this. They they point to the fact that Poland was one of the drivers behind the European Union's Eastern Partnership initiative, the fact that Poland has, uh, for many years, been um, broadcasting radio programs into into Belarus and has very much promoted a uh, historical uh, national identity of Belarusians that is at odds with the one that Lukashenko and his uh, uh, cohort. Uh, advocate. Um, I would say um, as well though, so whereas for a while this idea of Lukashenko playing off outside actors against one another, um, for a while that was the EU and Russia, more recently Lukashenko has talked up the prospects um, of benefiting from trading with China and also seeking some kind of security uh, guarantees from China. Um, and China, through the past decade or so, has kind of, in hit, it, it seems, in the eyes of the regime, has sort of rose on the horizon as a, a dazzling prospect. Um, but I would say that the picture is is uh, quite confused at best. Trade data, uh, when it's uh, issued uh, quarterly, say you know some some quarters it looks good, some quarters. It looks less good. It looks like things are not going uh, so favourably. But it's um, you yeah, know these are off of low baselines. Um, but but Belarus has been able to use China as a way of playing off uh, against Russia. So I give a case in the book where Russia was withholding um, the disbursement of a tranche of, of a loan to Belarus uh, because it was unhappy with uh, something. In the that Belarus was dragging its feet on, um, in its domestic politics, um, and Mr. Lukashenko turned in this at this point to China and got some money from there instead.
1: It's it's it is hard to see though what China gets out of this at this stage. I mean, given the given this, the the application of sanctions on Belarus as, as, as well as Russia, and and that this is something you you really Communicates in the book is how, um, while he did have these, you know, he ha- has had this policy over the last thirty years of trying to keep but you know, keep keep Russia close, but have this policy of sort of semi-equidistance. It it really does seem to have run out of road at this stage. Um, I mean, you say, for example, that uh, not just politically but economically, Belarus has become. Steadily more, de- uh, sorry, steadily more dependent on Russia. Can you explain how, and also you discussed this idea of the Union State that Russia and Belarus have been talking about for a while, which you seem pretty sceptical about. Do, do you think it's more or less likely, assuming that the Putin regime survives this, uh, what, what, what is probably going to t- turn out to be a frozen conflict uh, with Ukraine? Mm-hmm. Um
0: so, and I agree with the the first thing you said uh, uh, at the start. There, the, it, it's not obvious that Belarus is is so useful to China these days. I mean, back in the past, it it could try to present itself as a gateway into EU markets, but that's clearly not possible now, um, given how isolated uh, Belarus is under sanctions. Um, so, the Union State is a good example of both. Belarus is growing economic and political dependence on Russia. Um, I would say um, so. Listeners might not know very much about the Union State. It's it's this uh, slightly odd conception, a legacy of the nineteen nineties. Um, at the end of his time in office, Russia's President Yeltsin had signed the Union State Treaty for with Lukashenko, um, and for most of the time, this was looked like little more than a piece of paper um, it for they formed various bodies but uh, when putin came into office he didn't really seem to understand what it was about um but it's ostensibly been a way to to uh, deal with ideas about reintegration between the two countries um and more on the backdrop of the it came to quite prominent again when there was a debate about how putin might stay in office in russia uh, after twenty twenty uh, um, uh, 20 uh, 2024 2026 um and whether he might use the union state as a way of um taking power now that wasn't hugely convincing to to me um it has the union state has been a way for russia to tie belarus much more closely to it um so it feels like with the Russian perception has been for the Union state as being a way of, uh, in effect, absorbing Belarus back into its uh, fuller control. Although for Belarus, traditionally, it uh, the Lukashenko regime has long argued for some unrealistic notion of equality between the two members. Um, and this, where we are today is that various programs have been signed. And... Um, headed toward in direction of things like harmonizing taxation, indirect taxation in the first instance. But you can see the, the, the steps that you move along in integration, you move from in to direct taxation. And once you have common fis, uh, fiscal and monetary policy, then you're kind of ahead of the European Union on integration. Um, but, you know, at present, right, we should remember that the two states don't have a single currency. Um, despite it being talked of since the 1990s. Um, And so it's not that clear that there's much beyond technical cooperation has been agreed on formally. But, um, I mean, if it were properly realized, then uh, that's the point that it means Belarus has basically uh, ceded its, ceased to exist in nominal terms, even uh, in anything but nominal terms, um, because you have one one political unit, one government, one head of state. Um, And this kind of feeds into the way I th- uh, Putin views Belarus and also Ukraine, I think, if you if you will recall that Putin has said some pretty insulting things about Ukraine even before uh, last year's invasion, even before 2014 and the Maidan revolution. Yeah, We can go back to uh, the conversations on the sidelines of the uh, NATO summit in Bucharest in 2008, when Putin reportedly described Ukraine as an artificial state. Um, and then more recently in the summer of 2021, he, uh, he wrote this essay, which was Putin wrote an essay, which was widely read in policy circles in uh, Western Europe, uh, EU capitals uh, the, in North America where he talked about the historical unity of Russians and Ukrainians, but as well as um, Belarusians. Um, And he sort of described the state, the modern state of Ukraine, as occupying historical Russian lands in that essay. Um, And it's not much of an imaginative leap to uh, think that he understands the Belarusian state in a similar way, as a kind of Russophobic project sponsored by countries like Poland. Um, um and western states um, and so he doesn't see belarus as as authentic in 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 this regard um so and that has traditionally been slightly at odds with uh what the Lukashenko regime has tried to do because while whatever their views on history are they have they understand that sovereignty is a prized possession something to to be guarded with jealousy and um, and um, so it's that Lukashenko's ability to hold out against Russia has has largely collapsed at this point. Well, yeah. it,
1: it also seems to be at odds with, uh, as far as we could make of it, uh, at odds with public opinion because, um, you know, it's difficult to poll in a country like Belarus, as you may make, make clear in the book, but it does seem as though... Um, most Belarusians are opposed to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, And and yet we haven't seen the kind of demonstrations we saw in 2020 against the election result. Do do you think that's simply because of the the severity of the prison sentences that you do cover? I mean, it's amazing. there, There was one election, I think, 20, one of the ones in the teens where you say that pretty much every opposition leader who'd run against him ended up in prison after the election. So do you think it's that, or is there a certain uh, resigned um, a sort of... But Yeah, people are resigned to the fact that this guy has been in power for three decades, and they just think he's always going to
0: be there. Hmm. Uh, I think both of those things, plus I would point to an additional factor as well. Um, I, I agree with you that Belarusian public opinion is looks against the war Um chatham house uh, did some polling in march they just released the data um that found finds 30 percent of their respondents supported the war uh, 45 or so percent against it and then there's a a, a large undecided middle or well there's an undecided middle um, so sort of a quarter of the population um, but and then overwhelmingly, um, they don't want to see Belarusian troops involved. Uh, then the numbers against shoot up um, considerably, um, and that does put them at odds with with Russian public opinion. So I do think partly people are cowed into into silence. Um, the repressions, particularly on protests after 2020, were um, pretty extreme. Um, the the numbers are in prison uh the the, the number of people who are detained is very high this can be for uh, any sign of of dissent or uh, and indeed any sign of supporting ukraine's war effort um is crept down on uh, and we have the reports from the uh for example the un High uh, Commissioner for human rights talk uh showing documenting cases of beating of protesters and such forth um so that so there is that element that people are cowed into submission um, and they know that family members might get taken aside for a talking to and this is quite intimidating um and i think that feeds into uh what you described as resignedness um but there is also another factor here um so clearly a lot of the most ardent protests, people who might lead the protests, uh, some of them are now in prison, um, but also a great number of people have left the country. Um, I don't have figures for how many Belarusians have emigrated since August 2020, but I think it's rather a lot.
1: Yeah. You do seem confident though, you said this a couple of times in the book, that Lukashenko himself Still, can count on the support of around twenty-five to thirty-five percent of the population. What what gives you confidence in in this number, given the difficulty of uh, of polling, getting reliable polling information?
0: Mm. So, I do think that's right. I I do think he retains the core support, um, and I base that on what little polling we do have, combined with uh, some other facts, sort of awareness of what. I see among Belarusians. Um, I would say my level of confidence in that assessment is can only be moderate, moderate to high, it, rather than high. Um, but he, because even the small number of sociologists, political scientists who are able to conduct some kind of polling in Belarus um, do say they don't know the number supportive of the regime. Um, I. I I mentioned that Chatham House is doing polling. There are there are various others. Um as you say, polling is it's a challenging environment and there are some there are some errors. So most of these polls, uh, through no fault of the the pollsters, they suffer from, from sampling problems. See this the group of people they can survey, uh from which they are generalizing is not really representative of the the population at a whole. And I think most of the people conducting these surveys do acknowledge that their methods tend to skew their samples towards uh, the opposition to Lukashenka. Um, so that's one component of, of this. Now, they, they do do things. They try to introduce quotas or weighting, but that can, can amplify abnormal responses. Um, by that, I mean if you know that from a certain demographic group you should have 20 people in your survey, and you only have three, then uh, there might be something about that, that three that makes them unrepresentative of that component of the demographic. So by giving them extra weight, sort of multiplying their, that three so that it makes 20, uh, can just perpetuate uh, a false result. Um, but the polls that there are do seem to show that you have sort of around 30% still quite loyal to... Lukashenko historically has been much higher. Now there are also problems of misreporting which can work both ways. There are reasons why uh, if you support uh, Lukashenko and a western think tank asks you your opinion you might think it's socially desirable to tell a fib and claim that you support the opposition and perhaps more likely if you're in Belarus you fear being found out expressing your send for the for the opposition, uh, your support for the opposition. So you you fib and say you support Lukashenko. So we've got quite a, 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 some different dynamics pulling in different directions, um, and so it's kind of bringing these things together that brings me to my assessment that Lukashenko does have that support. Ah, I've got a fire alarm. Um, <laughs> so it's 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 um, it's challenging to draw conclusions from. The polls on their own, Um, but for that reason, and one issue that I do think is highly relevant here is to start trying to bring in other other bits of information which we can get, we can we can obtain from surveys. Um, They're not identical with the question of who do you support, um, but they give us uh, an impression of people's worldviews. and so there was a there was a sociological survey at the conducted in the second half of 2022 um, too late for inclusion in my book or mention in my book um, but that asked how belarusians understood their identity and that found um a third of people ascribing to what we could think of as soviet or russian national ideas the ideas that are pushed by the lukashenko regime um so, and, and and you've also got a, gr- a group of people who are quite indifferent to to politics um, all along, and they probably still is some people in that group. Um, so, uh, while in the book I argue that the protests awaken some kind of a political culture in in Belarus, um, at the same time there's still such a, a large legacy of uh, from the past and that's been so suppressed by Lukashenko that I think a lot of people, um, are, um, still inclined to, to stick with the status quo, particularly, and, and this had like after, so in post 2020, the mood, the, 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 the spirit of that time was clearly anti-Lukashenko Russia's invasion of Ukraine, uh, you know, one of the first effects of that in the polling was that some of the people in the middle sort of shifted back towards support for the regime and in a sort of well this is better than what we're seeing in uh, to ourselves Um so that's that, those are kind of that's a uh, a picture of some of the components that I'm putting together to come up with my view that he still does have this support base of about a third um but yeah you know I can't be highly confident in that what well, that Man. that that is what makes me wonder about what could
1: happen with the deployment of tactical russian weapons in, in belarus given given this uh what what appears to be quite strong opposition to direct involvement in the war if it's one thing to send troops south um it, but it's arguable that it's pretty much doing the same thing having Russian weapons on their soil. Do, do you think this is the kind of thing that could tip public opinion or even opinion within the regime against uh, Lukashenko?
0: Um, I think it will be unpopular if uh, nuclear weapons are deployed in, in Belarus. We we see that in democracies, right? Uh, you can of the 1980s when the CND's membership uh, rose massively and as it spearheaded deployments against Pershing missiles. Uh, you know, the Scottish National Party want Britain's nuclear submarines to be stationed away from Scotland. So as much as anything else, there's a common sense element that says it will be unpopular. It's kind of ironic that uh, nuclear weapons are deployed in the name of people's so-called security, and yet they make people feel quite insecure. Um, and we know that uh, so the Chatham House polls find 80% of people are in Belarus are opposed to um, having nuclear weapons on their soil. Um, and Lukashenko's claims to the contrary are somewhat perverse. Um, although I imagine that that in itself is not an issue that people will take to the streets over. And... Um, if Lukashenko were to commit troops to fight alongside Russia in Ukraine, then that's more likely to provoke a popular reaction. Um, and I think, actually, his awareness of that is probably what has stopped it from happening. You also meant, uh, suggested that the some of his inner circle might turn against him on this question. That is something I do not think I really am in a position to answer and that's, yeah. Well, actually on that,
1: um, you, you write that immediately after the invasion, the, the then foreign minister Mackay made some overtures to the EU, which were rebuffed. And then Lukashenko himself complained the war was dragging on. And one of his ambassadors said Belarus hadn't invited the Russians in to stage the invasion. Um, Mako was seen, rightly or wrongly, and I'd be interested in your opinion on that, as as the most West-oriented figure in the administration, and he suddenly died in November. Do you, a, do you have suspicions around that death? And B, was that a moment at which you think Lukashenko essentially surrendered to this, this soft annexation that's going on, that you identify as going on at the moment?
0: Mm um yeah so mckay vladimir mckay was belarus's long-serving foreign minister and been in that role for uh, a decade Uh, it was essentially his job to keep relations going with um with other states he was always loyal to lukashenko he had served as the head of the presidential administration in the past and lukashenko trusted him i think Sometimes his liberalism is exaggerated by people, but in relative terms, he was viewed as someone as a less hardline figure, someone keener to have maintain good relations with uh, all parties, far more so than some around him. Um, so he went down relatively well with Western diplomats. If we look at his tenure in the round and it's important the the qualifier relatively is important here because relations with Belarus have been um, turbulent um, through and through um so he understood the the benefits of diversifying the country's uh, relation international relations he understood the need to decrease its dependence on on Russia and so the MF the Ministry of Foreign Affairs under Mckay was seen as a rule, one of the more liberal government government departments, um, perhaps alongside some people in the finance minister branches of finance ministry. Um, and then he died uh, suddenly in November last last year. Um, so he was a man in his middle sixties in a high pressure job. The initial, although there was no formal cause of death announced it was initially suggested he'd had a heart attack, and I think that is quite plausible. Um, There were inevitably some conspiracy theories, some claims that Russia was unhappy because he was making overtures to the West and that they had murdered him um, or similar. Um, In isolation, I would be disinclined to give too much credence to that. I... It's of course possible, um, but I, I think it's more likely they were natural causes. Um, and then, in uh, more recently, there have been other suggestions he may have taken his own life. Um, but again, I these are these are rumours. I am not really in a position to to comment on those. I I think the the, the it's quite plausible that he he had a heart attack. Um, so, your part B of your question was about the soft annexation. Um, would I describe? So, I think if I, I think what you said is was, was is that the moment I would describe as the moment we uh, of the of the soft annexation. Um, I think often things like power shifts in politics, loss of sovereignty, these are things that actually happen unnoticed. They're they're realised later. So. You get that, I'd call it this, the Suez analogy. You know, Britain had lost its power by the end of World War II, but it took a little bit before people realized uh, the extent of that. Um, it took the Suez crisis to actually think, ah, okay, and more, more people suddenly grasped the fact. Um, so in terms of the Belarus and its sovereignty, I think the moment where we grasp that, how much has been ceded is probably... Uh, earlier, it's probably when Russia launches its invasion, in part from from Belarus. I think at, you know, we, um, after twenty twenty, in return for support, Lukashenko was left with very few options in the eyes of uh, EU governments, Washington, London, as well, and others. He was seen as uh, delegitimized, quite rightly so. Um, And so regime security became all that mattered to him at that point. Um, And in that context, he has made concessions to Russia. It's not entirely clear what he was doing, the whens and the hows, but I think come February last year, we can see how little autonomy, um, in fact, yeah, the Belarus doesn't really have any meaningful autonomy to talk of. Um, and so we saw it in the, after 2020, there were signs uh, Belarus had tried to ret- maintain a line where it hadn't de facto recognized, or sorry, de jure recognized Russia's annexation of the Crimean Peninsula. After 2020, Lukashenko uh, yielded on that point and said, well, it's Russia. Um, and so there's just been this buildup of, of evidence. Um, but I suppose the key point is that Russia never really needed to to do this in a moment. It could it could bide its time. It it uh, it knows that Lukashenko didn't really had fewer and fewer options, and so a creeping annexation of Belarus is something that can uh, can happen without uh, um, uh, an international furore in a way. Uh, I mean it. Yeah, you, know, you present, it can be presented as a failure complete. Um, so yeah. Um, I,
1: I just want to come up with a hypothetical. I mean, you, you, there were these, uh, documents that were leaked from Ukrainian intelligence that said that if Lukashenko had fallen in 2020, the Russians would have yeah, not, not done the crouping annexation. They would have done an, an actual annexation. Do you think in that circumstance now? If if the Russians really did send in troops to occupy Belarus, that there would be significant resistance, or would do you think the population is
0: is too cowed? Well, I think there would be some resistance. Um, I it's hard to tell. I think that, yeah, I mean that would. I think that would provoke quite a strong reaction. Um, Historically, it's been pretty clear that Belarusians do not want to be part of Russia. Um, So there would be a reaction. The scale of it is hard to say. I mean, at the moment, you have a, a significant number of Belarusians who have gone as volunteers to fight in Ukraine. And... Um, they have very much consolidated around. So initially there were various uh, regiments of volunteer fighters. First thing that happened was that the Ukrainian Territorial Reserve formally incorporated a lot of them into its uh, structures. But then within the Belarusians themselves, a lot of them have consolidated around the, behind something called the Kalinovsky Regiment. And there... Uh, so a lot of the nationalist forces uh, national uh, pro-democracy movement from from Belarus in the 1990s people associated with that have fallen into line behind this this new kind of core um and I think that if Russia were to uh, f- send troops into Belarus and try to announced that it was that Belarus was formally annexed to Russia I think you would see some of the that group that have been fighting in Ukraine uh quickly move back to to Belarus and take up the fight there um that would be my guess but it, it's we are talking about uh, hypotheticals and mm-hmm. uh, yeah you
1: you conclude the book by saying um quote, Lukashenko's position looks hopeless. Whatever happens, he has kept the loyalty of political elites, but an orderly transition to a chosen successor looks unlikely in such circumstances. Because disputes about policy will all too quickly surface. The regime will break, not bend. I mean, he has he has sort of floated over the years um, uh, a succession to one of his sons. His favorite seems to be the younger son at the moment. You, but you seem skeptical that he's going to be able to manage anything like that. Could, could you explain why?
0: Mm, so, I mean, I don't think he will go quietly. Um, I don't think uh, so. His younger son, youngest son, Um I don't think that will would go down well among the elite. I think, um he would, yeah, the the younger son would be viewed as a as a something of a whippersnapper if he were to uh if lukashenko tried to was to try to pass power to him um i mean i've i tried to one of the key organizing ideas in the book was that 2020 represented uh, a maturation of political culture among Belarusians; that there was some kind of political awakening um but because lukashenko hasn't allowed the political and civic institutions that can facilitate change manage transformation um i don't you know his only option really would be to try to hand off power in that way um but i think that's where you would see the elite within this his sort of inner circle you would see a lot of uh, ruffled feathers people that think well actually this is really their moment um and so that will cause problems um i think so, and, and without this kind of this 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 institutional framework to manage change, uh, you, you, you all I can really see happening is that there's a snapping of the status quo. Um, quite what that looks like, I mean, I, I don't want to speculate too much, um, but unfortunately, I can't I can't really see that there's an easy ride ahead for for Billerians. Um You know, I towards the end of the book, I sort of point to an increasing militarization on both sides uh, both regime and its opponents um and so if lukashenko is uh so you know, it, it could be quite messy i suppose um, is what i'm saying there and you, and you
1: seem a little skeptical about the the domestic uh influence of of the opposition who most of whom are, are living abroad, like um, uh, Tikhanovskaya. Um, do, do you think they lack legitimacy at
0: home? Um, yeah, so the problem for a lot of Belarusians is, particularly if they are being fed a diet of state media, is that they probably don't know very much about what uh, Svetlana Tikhanovskaya and those around her are are doing. Um Sihanovskaya's visibility is probably higher in uh in the within the EU, the UK, US than it is within Belarus itself, and certainly among a large swath of the of the Belarusian population. Um, it's worth bearing in mind the circumstances that brought her to become this figurehead of the democratic movement. Um, she, uh, you know, I've said at the time and I, I still think it, she represented uh, this a kind of zeitgeist, the spirit of uh, anti-Lukashenko opinion at that point in 2020, but she wasn't someone who was standing up with a political program and a long-term plan for the country. She... Yeah, she went into the 2020 election promising another vote six months down the line. Um, and um, so she solved a collective action problem, if you like, but she was not a long-term solution. Um, and even today, uh, does her the opposition around her have a, a full political program? Not really, I would say. They, so as of last summer, she has created a cabinet, Um, And they have individuals assigned various portfolios There's an economy minister, a defect minister, a a foreign minister Um, But the word minister is a little bit of a a myth here So they are dealing with some really important issues in the present Like someone is responsible for um, lobbying for political prisoners And uh, trying to help that situation, for example but that doesn't tell us what would happen if there was actually a fundamental change of regime in Belarus and whether or not they would be in a position to uh to take power um so that leaves that's part of why i think that post lukashenko belarus will be something of a muddle um it will be very you know, it was if you put uh, stefanity and into the rollers as, as president, then I think she would be reliant on uh, an awful lot of advice and support from outside actors, um, and whether or not outside actors have the willingness and resources to provide that support is an open question.
1: But uh, as always, to close, uh, because this is a podcast about books, I've asked my guest to recommend two. One from his field and one personal choice. Paul, what have
0: you chosen? So first of all, um I've chosen Karen Dowish's book, Putin's Kleptocracy. Um I only read this for the first time very recently. Um and i f- I've read several books or many books about corruption in Russia, um, bad behavior by the Putin elite, but none of them is as persuasive as Dowish's book um she is incredibly well sourced, and probably more than any book I've read about uh, the Putin regime in the past couple of years. It's really changed some of my views um, about the kind of about the extent of malfeasance in the in the Russian elite, and um, so that's what I'm calling my field. Right. Okay.
1: okay. And the second one.
0: And um, so for my second book, I wanted to go with a novel because I I read a lot of novels, and. I've chosen um, Joseph Conrad's *Nostromo*. Um, I this is a book that I find um, an incredibly absorbing story. Um, I've read it several times. Um, it concerns a, a fictional country in South America that has a, a long history of living under dictatorship, and um, in it, one of the characters has uh, an unpublished book manuscript. Um, which at one point is given the title 30 years of misrule. And I can't help but note by way of conclusion that Mr. Lukashenko is about to enter his 30th year in power, and one wonders if it might be the last.
1: Right, the hack of choices. Well, today I've been talking to Paul Hansbury about his in Crisis, published this month by Hearst. Paul, thanks again for coming on.
0: Uh, it's an honour to have been with you.